following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right. Welcome this morning. Hopefully, hello, hello, check one, two, are we good? Uh, We'll be looking this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there or follow with the reference on the screen. Um, Yep, actually it's going to be not that. It's going to be 10, 19 through 25. Unfortunately, my computer died this week, and so I wasn't able to build a PowerPoint. So I don't have a PowerPoint for this week. And so those slides are good for the first three verses, and then... Um, it will stop. <laughs> but I'll keep reading. Uh, so Hebrews 10, 19-25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, this, this passage, we started last week, and it really is one unit. We're going to focus this morning mostly on verses uh, 23, 24, and 25, but it really connects with what we started looking at last week. Um, and he's really, if you've been going with us through the book, The Journey in Hebrews, you know that... Uh, the focus that he's been laying out for us is the path to maturity. What does it mean to be mature in Christ? Uh, and apparently, the author of Hebrews felt that his audience, the people he was writing to, were, were not mature. And if you remember in chapter 6, he says, um, you know, you're still in need of milk, and, and you're not yet able to digest the chew on the meat of the word. And so he uh, kind of rebukes them, and in this there's a, a number of warning passages that they are mature, they're immature and they should not be, that they've been believers long enough, they should have moved past milk to the meat of the word. And so a lot of what he's writing is how they can up their game, right? How they can grow in maturity and be the kind of um, people of God who uh, represent Christ in the world in a way that, uh, reflects his character and his glory and are able to do his work, right? They're mature. And so uh, from chapter 6 to the first part of chapter 10, he's been laying out uh, the, the, the theology, the doctrine upon which our maturity is built. And he says we must press on to issues, not the basics of Christ, but the deeper things of Christ. And so we've been looking at that. Um, when you think about Uh, how to measure maturity, Um, if I were to survey you, if I was to get out the maturity-o-meter and I was to wave it over you, how mature are you in your walk with Christ? 
Uh, one of the problems with how we measure maturity in the world and in our, our age is we're very much about what you know, right? Oftentimes we think, oh, I'm a very mature person because I know a lot about the Bible. And this kind of gets ingrained in us because of our experience in school, right? This is how it works in school. To get to all the way up to the 12th grade, you have to do what? Well, you have to know stuff. And you have to prove that you know stuff on tests. Um, uh, that's how it works. Uh, your ability to grow, as it were, is based on how much you know. Uh, and even in, in uh, Bible college and seminary, my, my teachers and professors didn't actually evaluate my character at all. Actually, they didn't really care about my character. I'm sure if I had done something bad enough, they would have cared. But all they really wanted to know is if I could answer their questions, right? If I knew the right answers, if my theology was good. <clears throat> and so we, we kind of get set up with this idea that our, our maturity as a basis is, is, comes down to what we know. If we've got the right theology, and even better yet, if we can argue that theology in a way that kind of bowls over our opponent, we must be mature, right? As long as we can trash the enemy <clears throat> with our knowledge, then we're mature. But of course we know, we know that that's not true. We know that maturity is not just what you know, but how you're putting into practice what you know. And so uh, we come to verse 19, and he, you, he throws out the word, therefore. As you know, oftentimes in Scripture, when there's a therefore, especially at the beginning of a sentence like this, it's, uh, we're supposed to ask, what's it there for, right? Uh, and it's usually a sign word that uh, we're going to pull together a lot of what we've been talking about and apply it in some way, uh, because this is true, you should be doing this, or you should be responding in this way. Um, kind of like, you know, I've been telling you all kinds of important stuff, and therefore, here's what I want you to do about it. And that's the weight or force of the word here. Therefore, uh, because of all the stuff that Jesus has done for us as, as our great high priest and by his blood, we need to do something about it um, so that we walk into maturity. So it could be a, a, a formula. Oftentimes a therefore will be like this. Therefore, since blank is true, then you need to do this. Right? And that's what we see here. So as in, for example, since the gas gauge is on E, therefore you should get gas. Right? You guys are pretty bright. Uh, therefore, since your final exam in chemistry is tomorrow and you're basically almost failing the class, therefore you should study hard all night, right? You should actually read the book, um, right? And, th and this is what the author is saying here, exactly, saying, therefore, since, and he has two great since statements, since um, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since uh, we have this great high priest over the house of God, therefore let us. And he names three things that we should be doing. And these three things are, in essence, marks of maturity. Right? He doesn't say, okay, there's going to be a quiz, and I want you to be able to tell me all the things that Jesus' blood accomplished for you. Because that's what he's been talking about for the last four chapters. But that's not the test. The test is, no, I've been talking about the blood of Jesus, his great high priest, and what he has accomplished for us now Therefore, 
you need to live differently in response to this information and to these truths that we now know. Um, and the three marks of maturity that he talks about are first, the mark of drawing near to God. Secondly, the mark of, the, of holding fast to the hope of our confession. And thirdly, the mark of motivating one another to love and good works. Uh, and it's important that as we, we're going to, we looked at one of those last week, the first one, drawing near to God. We're going to look at the, the hope of our confession today and, and the uh, stirring one another up to love and good works. Uh, but before we jump into that, it's important to just review real briefly the basis for this living differently. He is not saying here, look, because of all the stuff I've been telling you, you need to get out there and try harder because you're all a bunch of losers and it's up to you to make this happen. It's not what he's saying. In fact, what he's saying is the exact opposite. On the basis of what Jesus has accomplished by his blood and by his priesthood, therefore, you now have the power, not in your strength, but in Jesus' strength, to live differently to progress and to grow to a place where you are mature in Christ. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that you're here this morning because you want to be mature in Christ. Now, if you don't want to be mature in Christ, you're going like, hey, milk's good for me. Uh, I think meat's overrated or whatever. I don't know. That's um, a different issue. But I'm making the assumption that, that growing, having a life that's marked by maturity and godliness and strength, uh, of growing up is something important to us. Um, and the basis for that is not our effort, our goodness, our capacity. It's based on what Jesus has accomplished for us. And that was what he's been emphasizing over and over in the last four chapters. Uh, so he, uh, just also to review a little bit, last week he, he gave us the first mark. He said, let us therefore... Draw near to God with a, a heart, uh, a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Um, and that mark is mentioned first for a reason. Uh, there is a sequence to this. And the first and most important thing, which he's emphasized over and over throughout the book, is that we live life as followers of Jesus in the presence of God. Right? And, and his, his description of an immature believer is one who understands Jesus' death only in terms of forgiveness for sin. It's like, well, Jesus, you know, his blood washed and cleansed me from sin, and so I'm good, and so I don't really have to worry about too much else because I'm forgiven. He says that's a mark of immaturity, not because it's not true, but because it's incomplete. Uh, it's not moving on to deeper things. And the deeper things that he stresses over and over is that we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're made, we're made holy and blameless so that we can live in God's presence, close to him, in close relationship with him. And that's what he calls us to. And uh, it's important because that's the place where, as we abide in Christ, we will bear fruit, uh, Jesus says in John 15. So these other things happen not apart from drawing near, but because we draw near, because we now have the capacity to live moment by moment near to God in fellowship and communion with him. And we talked about that last week, so we're going to skip on. We're going to look at the other two marks of maturity. And the first one is the mark of uh, the confession of our hope, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
So the second mark of a mature believer is somebody who has a life full of a hope and a specific kind of hope that's rooted in our confession. Uh, and he says we're, we're to hold fast. Uh, the idea means not turning to the right or to the left, to, to have a clear course set before us and to be navigating that course uh, with fierce determination that we're not going to get steered off course. Right? We know what the goal of our life is. We know the direction we're to be headed. And we are sticking to that goal. Right? We are focused on it. Um, we're holding fast. We're steadfast and firm. We're not getting pulled and tugged and derailed by other things. You know, I think one of the greatest, um, I don't know if I'd call it an evil, but problems of our modern age is that we have invented 10 million ways to distract ourselves, right? I mean, uh, you don't really have to be, like if you're ADD, I don't even know how you survive in this world, because you don't even have to really be ADD in the world we live in to find ourselves constantly distracted. Uh, biggest one being our, our phones, our smart our smartphones, uh, with 10 million distractions on them. Uh, and just to make sure that we're distracted, we set all kinds of notifications to keep telling us, here I am, here I am. Come look at me. Come check me out. I just got this amazing, you know, email so important about Viagra or some other stupid thing, right? Um, but I got to check it out, right? Well, that's, that's the world we live in, constantly distracting us. And, and he's saying, uh, we need to be steadfast on, and not distracted, not pulled, not wavering, right? focused on... Uh, the goal that is ahead of us, and the goal that ahead of is ahead of us, um, is is described as hope. And in the Bible, it often talks of this threesome: faith, hope, and love. And we see that here in Hebrews. Uh, the first um, mark was to draw near to God with what? A true heart in the full assurance of faith. So there's faith. Now we see we are to hold fast. Uh, to the, to the hope of our confession. And in a moment, we're going to see that we're to stir each other up to love and good work. So we see this kind of trilogy operating here, faith, hope, and love. Um, and I, I get faith, honestly, this is my confession, I get, I think, to some degree, faith and love. I understand those. But honestly, hope for me has always been kind of a hopeless pursuit, uh, something I just don't get. Uh, and maybe you feel the same way. Um, and, and part of the problem is that um, for us, hope is often expressed in terms of a wish, right? Well, we hope it doesn't rain this afternoon, or we hope, you know, that that money we're waiting for arrives, or, you know, uh, we hope our car doesn't. There's just kind of general wishes that don't really mean a lot. But the, the Bible has a much different sense or idea of hope. In the Bible, hope is based on a certainty and conviction about the future. Right? So in the Bible, the word is used to mean not something we wish for, but something we can absolutely count on as coming true and coming about in the future. Uh, hope is, in a sense, faith that's directed toward the future. Uh, it is, uh, you know, faith is we're to trust God in the present, but hope is a vision for the future based on what we believe to be true about God and his promises. So, so hope is a vision of what we see ahead of us. It's a, it's, it's a goal based on what, what we believe uh, God has promised us, 
that will come about in the future as we follow him. And it's a, it's a conviction. And the reason it's a conviction or a strong belief is that it's based on God's unchanging character and his promises. Right? That's the, the anchor of it. It's not something I just wish for and I hope comes true. It is holding on firmly to what God has promised and said will come true, will happen. Right? That is our hope. Um, uh, and he says it's specifically the hope we confess. So what he's painting here is a picture. We are to have a goal ahead of us. We should have in our minds a vision about the future. And that vision or that picture should be clearly shaped and molded by the promises uh, and working of God. When you think about the future, what do you think about? Well, interestingly, a lot of times what we tend to think about is the choices I'm going to make, right? the things I'm going to do, the things I would like to do. But what he's putting before us here is a vision of the, of, of the future where our hope, our, our, our foresight is of what God is going to do in the world and in our, in our, in our own lives. Um, and much of what he is going to do is, can be summed up in what he's been talking about in the last four chapters. Uh, what Jesus has done to obtain for us a sure and certain uh, salvation. And uh, salvation is something that we receive in the present. But believe me, there's lots more to what is to come. Like, like how many of you are happy with how saved you are now and this is all you want? Anybody? Like, I'm thinking there's got to be more because, like, for one thing, I'm getting old and every part of my body is getting slower and fatter and uh, hurts more, right? And, and, and um, there's this part about salvation that talks about a new body, right? I want that, right? I want that. I, I'm not satisfied just with the way things are. Uh, in my life, I want to be a person who is mature, who always says and does the right things, but when I look at my present reality, do I always say and do the right things? No, no, right? Sometimes I say things that I deeply regret. Right? There, there should be more to salvation than what we currently have. And that's his promise, right? That is his promise to us, that the work of Christ is a work that is begun in us, but it's not finished yet. There is much more to come. And so the hope we confess is this hope that we have a future where God is going to work out all his salvation in our life. Um, as we grow older and as we move into eternity, that we will experience the full and complete cleansing of his forgiveness. Right, completely. Like we have this vision that's so effective as Jesus' blood that one day in the future... He will return and it says he will judge the world. And we will stand before Jesus and we are going to um, be before him. Will we pass the test? Right? And he will base his judgment on the righteousness of our life. Well, I know my life and I know that my life is not righteous. And if I stand before God in my own stead, in my own works, I'm in serious trouble because it says that I will fall under God's wrath, his judgment. But the promise is that I have been cleansed, and that when I stand before God because of the blood of Jesus, there will not be one single accusation about my life that I have sinned. 
My sin is clean, washed, gone. And so I have a future where I know I'm going to stand before God with confidence. And I don't have to fear that I will fall under his judgment. Um, We've said that salvation means we have the right of access into God's presence without limit. That should be a present reality. It should be something that we are learning how in our heart and soul and the depths of our being to come into the presence of God. Um, Again, like we said last week, not a feeling, not something that we may have some kind of cosmic weird experience, but just on faith, knowing that our soul draws near to him and we live in his power and in his presence. But there's future promise in that as well, uh, that the capacity to live and walk in his presence should be growing ever more in our life. But is that your vision of the future? Do you have a vision that as I walk with God, I'm going to become closer and closer and closer to him in deeper communion and fellowship with him until the day that I die when I actually just I'm just in his presence, fully aware of who he is. But that's that's the vision of hope that he wants us to have, to hold on, to navigate, to steer towards um, these promises. And there's many, many more. We don't have time to talk about them. Um, but, but the point is that it creates a reality for us about the future that is good and where our lives are being changed and transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. And we're becoming more like him. We are filled with more power. We are overcoming sin in a bigger and greater way. So is that the hope you hold on to? Is that where you're steering and directing your life? Um, I think one of our challenges as we think about hope is um, we, we get the impression that hope doesn't really matter, right? That hope really doesn't have anything to do with how I live my life today. And that's because we misunderstand how hope works. Um, when we live in a very comfortable and affluent world like, we, like most of us do, where we have more than enough money and we can travel and, and life is fairly comfortable. None of us are probably threatened with going to jail for preaching the gospel. Uh, uh, none of us are worried about our house being blown up, most likely. It's very easy to become complacent and be, uh, to love too much the present. Right? And so we get so enamored with my life here and now and the present reality of where I am that I just honestly don't think much about the future because I'm happy now, right? I like things the way things are now. But that's not true for everybody, and it shouldn't be true for us, right? We may be living way too much in the present and are concerned too little about the hope that is before us. Um, Another way to put this in perspective, when we think about the 12 boys and their soccer coach trapped in the cave, um, how much does hope matter to them? Right? What difference does hope matter to them? I, I just think, and I, I just, uh, maybe we, I don't know if you do, but I mean, I think a lot of us think about what it must be like to be in that cave. And for that week when they were, before they were discovered, those whatever it is, eight or nine days, however long they were there. Can you imagine what life was like sitting in absolute, total, palpable darkness? And, and uh, we know that they were wondering, do they even know where to look for us? 
How will they ever find us? Is it possible even that they could ever find us? And I can't imagine sitting there um, wondering um, what's going to happen and having really no hope that they would be found. And what would be the result of that? I don't know about you, but I would be, I would be very despairing, right? despondent, uh, maybe depressed, probably terrified. Right? So there they are sitting in darkness. And then all of a sudden, proof out of the blue, some guy comes up out of the water with a flashlight, wearing a scuba suit, speaking to them in English. You know, all of a sudden, there's what? There's hope. They did know where to look for us. They figured it out. They, they, they made the effort, and all of a sudden now there is what? There is hope. Right? There is hope. Do you think it mattered for those boys? Oh, man, I can't imagine what, how much it mattered. Right? Um, suddenly there is a reason to live. Suddenly there is work to do. Now they have to prepare. They have to get ready. They have to figure, learn how to swim and scuba dive. And um, They've got work to do. They, they have a mission and purpose because why? Because there is hope that they can get out. Well, the same thing is true for us. In many ways, we are just like those boys lost in total darkness uh, in lives that have no meaning and purpose. And then Jesus comes in and he brings to us hope. Right? And maybe in many respects, we're still stuck in the cave. We're still in this world and in this life. And maybe things look awful dark sometimes. Maybe for us, things can be very discouraging. And we may feel like... Uh, you know, nothing is changing. Nothing is happening. But hope tells us that it's not going to be this way forever. That there is a rescue coming. There is help coming. And there is a different future ahead for us. But we have to do what? We have to prepare for it. Right? It matters how we live now if we want to see the future fulfilled and accomplished the way God promised. It's not going to happen by accident. Just like those 12 boys now have to learn how to scuba dive and uh, at, a, at a level like to the top of the world scuba diver, right? Um, and they need miracles too. So we've got to pray for them. But um, there's work there. for There's a mission. There's, but they've got to do the work now. But they should be inspired and motivated. Why? Because they understand the hope before them. Right? That's us. Right? That's what it should do for us. When we, when we have a clear vision of what God's called us to in the future, it should inspire us to navigate towards that, to set our course towards that, uh, and start taking steps towards that future today. And we do that because he who has called us is faithful. The one who has promised is faithful. God is not going to back out on his word. He will keep all of his promises. Uh, because of the blood of Jesus. Right, so that's the first mark. The mark of a person who, uh, whose life is marked with a confident hope. And they are living their life uh, toward that hope. Like committed, intentionally serious about that hope. Second mark. Or actually the third mark. So the first mark, draw near to God. Second mark, uh, a life filled with hope. Thirdly, uh, third mark, a life um, where we are motivating one another to love and good works. Verse 24, let us consider, think about how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say the, see the day drawing near. Uh, what I find fascinating here is we all know we're supposed to be people who, who love. Uh, certainly that is one of the marks of maturity, that we uh, love each other, that we are a people whose lives are marked by love. Uh, Christians as a group are to be people who have a reputation as being loving and caring and who do good to each other and in the world. Uh, and, and certainly we should live that out most here in the, in, in the church, in the local assembly of believers. We have to be a people who, towards every brother and sister, there is, there is love and there is goodness and there is caring and compassion. But what's interesting here is he doesn't say we are to be people who are loving. He says we are to be a people who know how to stir each other up to love and good works. In other words, it's not just our responsibility for me, myself, to be loving. But one of the marks of maturity is that I know my responsibility is not only that I would be loving, but that I would be getting you fired up to be loving as well. That's part of what it means to be mature. As we take responsibility for each other's growth and maturity, and we, we think about, we consider, we plan how to stir each other up. Um, the word stir up, stirring somebody up, actually uh, can have the idea to provoke somebody to something or incite them to do something, sometimes with a negative connotation. In fact, the word is actually most, used, most commonly used negatively. Uh, I remember when I was in seventh grade, in eighth grade, in ninth grade maybe, uh, being pressured to do things that I knew were wrong. Right? Pure pressure, right? Um, I didn't want to do things, and oftentimes I, w- I would end up doing things that I, didn't, I really did not want to do. The only reason I did it was why? Because I knew my friends were pressuring me, right? And how does that pressure come? Well, it comes in the form of not fitting into the group or being laughed at or being ridiculed, right? I want to fit. I want to belong. I want to be cool. So we do what the crowd's doing because we feel this pressure to do. And that's what that word means, that, that, that being provoked, being incited, being pressured to do something, of course, he's using it here not in a negative sense as peer pressure, but as a positive kind of peer pressure, that we are pressuring each other. We're using peer pressure. We're, we're motivating and challenging each other to be out there as people who do love and good works, who live out Christ's character. Um, and I think the reason he calls us to this, and the reason this is important, is that being loving and doing good things is not natural to us. In fact, if we're honest, we will say that no, we're far too selfish to be naturally loving other people. Uh, I need to be reminded um, and motivated uh, to be giving, to be loving, to be making the sacrifices to care and do uh, what's necessary to help others. Um, especially those who are hard to love. Like, there's people who are easy to love. There are people it's really quite easy to do nice things for, right? There's those people that, like, have to love them, right? And, and, you know, there's this future hope thing. Here's part of the future hope. This is why this is important. Like, uh, this is not actually out of the Bible. It's kind of my own crazy thinking. But I got this idea, this hunch, that when we get to heaven, like, you know, God's building mansions for us, have you ever wondered, who's, ever wondered who's going to be your neighbor? 
We should really think a lot about this because I know who's going to be your neighbor. That person you could not get along with. And for all eternity, guess what? Your neighbors. You ever go to some party, you know, and, and like you see everybody in the room, there's a lot of people you would love to, to talk with. And, you know, you're invited to all sit down at the table. And, of course, you know, you're kind of jockeying your seat where you're going to sit. And, you know, things work out where you end up sitting next to that person, right? right? Doesn't it ever, for me, it always works out that way. Right? Uh, we're to love everyone. And we're to be inspiring each other to love like that. Right? To love, to do good deeds towards each other. Um. And it's important to go back and remember the therefore, right? We do these things, therefore, not because we're wonderful and because love just naturally flows out of us. We do these things because of the blood of Jesus, right? Because he has opened up for us a new and living way so that we can be in the holy places where we stand in God's constant loving presence. And he wants to pour his love out in in us and through us so that we love, not with our love, with his love. Right? It's he who does this work. It's the finished work of Christ that makes this possible. Not just because I'm more determined. Right? It's because I'm learning more how to abide in him and do this by his power. So the question is, you know, we need to have this clear vision of the future uh, on the promises of Jesus and his, his, his work in us to produce in us these hearts that are full of love and where we have this energy, right, this kind of aggressive plan to stir each other up to love and good works, where we're, we're challenging each other. We're living in, in, in a way that we're motivating each other to live out the Christian life. So how does that happen? How do we do that? How exactly are we supposed to motivate each other, inspire each other to love and good works? Well, it's almost as if, and maybe the author actually anticipated that very question, and he answers it in the next verse, verse 25. How do we do this? By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The only way we can be effective in challenge and and motivating each other to loving good works is as we live together in relationships in the body of Christ. As we encourage each other, as we know each other, as we meet together to challenge each other to live out what God has called us to. Uh, The Christian life was never, ever, ever intended to be a solo venture. Uh, In fact, you cannot uh, cannot reach maturity in Christ by yourself. Uh, Scripture just teaches that over and over again. It's impossible. It doesn't matter how much you study. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you memorize. You cannot reach maturity in Christ by yourself. Right? We need others whacking us upside the head, motivating us to love and good works. I need that. You need that. We need that. Uh, and so he, he warns the readers not to neglect, not to neglect gathering together. Uh, in English, uh, in, uh, some translations say meeting together. In English, the word meeting would be a verb, something you do. But actually in the Greek, uh, the word is a noun. 
Uh, it's, it's really literally the meeting, not neglecting the meeting or the gathering. Uh, in Greek, it's the word uh, that we get the word synagogue from. It means to assemble, and it's a word that's used for the church. So a short answer here, what he's saying, what he means by this is don't neglect church. Right? Now, of course, we, the church is the body of Christ, but what we mean by church and the way we often use it is the gathering, the assembly, what we're doing right here and now gathered together. This is church. Right? He says, don't, don't neglect this. This is important. And it's one of the ways that you will grow towards maturity. Um, and what he's, what he's urging here is, is to do church, but not just universal church. Right? The universal church is all God's people in all places at all times. And that's um, uh, what he's talking about. I and mean, that's part of the church. But what he's talking about is local believers gathering together for worship, communion, and fellowship. Um, and it is, there is something institutional and organized about this meeting. Now, I know I, I just said two really evil words there, organized and institutional. And we live in a day and an age where there's a lot of mistrust about things that are institutional. And, and I've, I've read whole books on how evil the institutional church is. Um, but I'm telling you, in Scripture, and according to God's own plan, the church is very institutional. Right? Now, that's not all the churches. The church isn't, isn't just the meeting on Sunday morning. And there is something very organic about the universal church. Uh, We've got to be careful we don't uh, throw out one at the expense of the other. The church is a gathering of people locally in one place and one time on a certain hour where we come together to do what? To stir each other up, to love and good works, to encourage one another. Uh, that place and time for doing that is important. Um, he says, don't abandon that. And, and by this, he doesn't mean, you know, um, getting together at Starbucks for, for coffee, coffee and chatting with your friends. So there's nothing wrong with that. And that can be very meaningful fellowship and certainly is good. But that can never be a substitute for the gathering together as the body of Christ, as a local uh, group of believers for worship. That's the pattern. In Acts chapter 2, they gathered, the church gathered for the purpose of worship, prayer, partaking the Lord's Supper and coming under the teaching and preaching of the Word. Acts chapter 2. For the last 2,000 years, that's been the pattern right, that we gather for instruction, for worship, for celebrating the Lord's Supper and for prayer. Um, and clearly, when we gather, we have, we have a purpose. Right? The purpose is not to entertain. The purpose is not to make you feel good. The purpose is to kick you <laughs> and challenge you and inspire you, right? To motivate us to love and good works. Um, our gathering has several purposes. And certainly one of the primary purposes of this gathering is to, is to give God worship. And in the language of Hebrews, it's this idea of drawing near. We draw near to God individually, but we also draw near to God corporately. And uh, there's, some, there's something special that happens when God's people come together, and together they seek God's presence. Uh, some of my most powerful experiences of God's presence have, have been in this room with, with you people worshiping. Right? And, and I pray and hope, and we, 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 that's a goal for why we gather. 
But in addition to that, we also work for the purpose of encouraging one another through the preaching of the word, uh, by challenging each other with and reminding each other what scripture says. Uh, when we go to church, how do you evaluate how good church was? Now, I know this happens, but it's okay. You go after church, you go to lunch, and what do you do? You evaluate the service, right? Boy, was Tim off today, right? Man, I don't know what he was talking about. I think Tim's a heretic, right? Or maybe you think it was good. I don't know. Worship man, man, that one girl kept singing off key, right? How do we evaluate church service? Um, one of the dangers in this is that oftentimes we view going to church as a consumer, right? And, and, and very much we live in a consumer-driven society. And it's very easy to think about church in terms of how good it was, what I got out of it. But what do you, and, and, and there is a sense in which there is a consumer piece to church. Um, there is something we should get. And what we should get is encouraged and challenged to be loving more and doing more good works. Right? So today, when you go after lunch and you're evaluating the service, that would be the one question. Did I get really challenged to be more loving, to be doing more good, to be living out the life of Christ more effectively in the power of Jesus. Now, if you don't feel you got that, please email me and say, Tim, you are not encouraging me and challenging me enough to be more loving and to walk in greater obedience. Because then you did not get your money's worth, right? You, and, you, and you have a legitimate complaint, right? That we should get. But beyond that... Uh, for the mature person, church is not a place where I go to get something. It's a place where I go to give. Like when I evaluate church, when I measure it, when we measure it on Sunday afternoon lunch, we should be saying, what did I do to give when I went to church? Because that's what he's talking about here. The mark of a mature person is one who knows how to stimulate and stir up others to love and good works. Right? That's why we gather, not to get, and, and you should get fed, but, but also to give. Like, how is my giving today? Like, do we ever evaluate that? How is my giving and my participation and my pouring into people at church today? Was I participating in worship? Or was I only passively watching? Was I participating in the prayer time and joining in and praying? It's like, man, it got so long. It went on and on and on and on. Well, you know, if you're engaged, if you're praying along with, right, participating, who did I talk to and what relationships did I form that I could build on that this week and I could encourage somebody? Like who in this room, as you look around and afterwards as we're milling around, who looks discouraged? Who looks worn out? Who can you go up to and say, hey, can we, can we go to Starbucks for coffee? Because I, I want to I wanna love you and encourage you. Right? Um, of course, gathering on Sunday morning is not the only time. We, we should gather in small groups. We should gather at Starbucks. We should do meals together. Right? We should be having relationships outside of just Sunday morning with this local group of believers to encourage them.
last thing. He says this. Not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some, which, by the way, he's talking about a habit here. Church should be a habit. Life at the body of Christ should be habitual. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day he's talking about here could be the fall of Jerusalem. But for us, it certainly means the day of Christ, the day of Jesus' return. This is our hope and our vision of the future. Jesus will return, and every single one of us will stand before him, and because of his blood, we will never have to give an answer for sin. There will be no accusation absolutely for any sin in our life. But we will also have to give an accounting for our life. He's going to say, I gave you five talents. I gave you three talents. I gave you one talent. Show me the money. (laughs) Show me the return on the gifts that I've given you. What do you have to show for it? That's our vision of the future. This is a certain reality. We're going to give an accounting for our life. And I want to be one among those who, to whom I can say honestly, because of the blood of Jesus and because of what you have done in my life, my life has borne fruit for your glory and your kingdom. Right? And he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Because we have drawn, we've lived a life of drawing near to God. We have lived a life of holding fast to the hope which we confess. And we have lived a life diligently and and intentionally encouraging and motivating one another to love and good works. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.